We're in John chapter 3. I thought we were going to get through the chapter this morning, and we're at the back half of it. I'm going to pick up, actually, right where we left off. Well, not even where we left off last week. I'm going to pick up where we were last week. Uh, but I'm going to approach what we looked at last week, expand a little bit, and hit it from a different angle. Um, so I'm going to read to you out of the New American Standard, 2020 edition. And I want to start at verse 25 and read to verse 30. Of course, this is the time where Jesus has left Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem during the conversation that he had with Nicodemus in the earlier part of John chapter 3. He has left uh, Jerusalem. He's gone into probably the Judean countryside, or at least that's how some of the uh, translations uh, refer to it as. John is up continuing his ministry really in the area of Samaria. And he's up there, he's baptizing as well, uh, which I found interesting. And, and perhaps, it, as I gave this more thought, perhaps it is that John the Baptist, I said John and referred to John the Baptist, um, that John the Baptist might have been fulfilling in some respects part of that great commission that we have in Matthew chapter 28 where we're told to go into the na- uh, all the world and to make disciples. And he had not yet been thrown into prison. And as I brought out to you last week, Um, that little tidbit of information tells us that all this that we have read thus far, probably from uh, John chapters 1, 2, and 3, or actually, well, 2 and 3 is more of a narrative, and really even into chapter 4, really is the very earliest part of Jesus' ministry, and it began probably, and if you want to put a time frame to it, This probably all happened prior to uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. I mentioned that last week. Um, If you're not sure about what I'm talking about, you can ask me later. But but, um, to me, the the time frame of the Gospels is really secondary. Um, We really want to look at what the story is telling us and why are these things put together in the order that they are. And John takes a lot of liberty in his gospel, uh, writing uh, his fourth gospel, probably one of the last books that was written that became a part of the New Testament canon. And so John the Baptist is up baptizing in the region of Samaria. It tells us he's baptizing, verse 23, in Anon near Salem. I looked it up on the map, and it's definitely in the region of Samaria, which was not a popular place for a Judean to go to. Matter of fact, we'll, we'll eventually look at this in John chapter 4 because the Jews, if they were traveling to the northern region known as the Galilee region, uh, between Judah and Galilee lay Samaria. And so instead of going straight through Samaria, they took a detour because they didn't want to be around the Samaritans. And they would do this end around and go completely around the region of Samaria, and then enter into the region of Galilee from the southeast. Um, so they, actually, they would even cross the Jordan, many of them, and, and travel on the east side of the Jordan, which absolutely made no sense to me because that was total Gentile territory. 
but they would rather go through Gentile territory than through Samaritan territory. Now, does that make any sense? I'll just let you think that one through on your own. How's that? Let's pick this up in verse 25 of Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 3. And it says, Then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have baptized, behold, he is baptizing, and all the people are coming to him. John replied, a person can receive nothing, not even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. I'm going to read that again because I kind of fumbled over it because it went to another translation in my head. John replied, a person can receive not even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I have said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly of the groom's voice. So the joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning concerning this passage. And Lord, in, in our own lives, both in our, in, our, in our public social lives, but even in the privacy of our own hearts, that we would recognize that you must increase and we must decrease. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear that which the Spirit would say to us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So there's this dispute going on, as I talked about this last week, between a Jew, or it could be on some of the other translations, it's singular. Some of them are plural. It could be more than one Jew. Uh, the translation I read out of uh, uses a manuscript that has a Jew, singular. To me, that is really uh, unimportant. Uh, the issue is the fact that they were disputing about who was the most, uh, about this idea of purification, about this idea of ritual washing. And uh, the, the, particularly the Pharisees had come up with this extravagant formula that you had to do this type of ceremonial washing every time uh, through times of the day, not only before you ate, but it also at different times of the day, if you'd come in contact with, with, let's say, an unclean thing, you would have to go through all this washing. And it was very similar to the ritual, or the practice, I should say, that, let's say, a surgeon will, will do before they uh, perform surgery. Which, by the way, I've had surgery a few times, and I really hope that the, uh, my surgeon followed those procedures and when you have surgery I hope that the surgeon does follow those procedures because I think they're important but but because they're sticking their hands in a human body but but for some of these things they were ceremonial and Jesus really nails the Pharisees later he says you're teaching the uh, as the laws of God the precepts of man now of course we never do that in church now do we no, of course we don't. I'll just leave that one with you. But I think we have to be careful is, is to, to not to allow the Scripture to say any more than it says. Don't let it say anything less than what it says, but don't add to it. Matter of fact, one book 
The book of Revelation says there's a curse on anybody who adds to this book or anyone who subtracts from this book. Now, some people interpret that as the entire Bible. Um, I think it's referring to the book of Revelation. Your mileage may vary. How's that? All right? But anyway, um, there's this dispute going on. And so the dispute escalates. And I'm presupposing some things in reading this text. And just as I mentioned this to you last week, just to want you to be aware of that again this week, I think this, this argument escalated. And it became, oh, yeah, well, you, you're following the Pharisees, and they're not even following uh, John the Baptist. They're not even following Jesus. Oh, yeah, well, speaking of Jesus, his ministry is bigger than John the Baptist now. So what do you have to say about that? And all of a sudden, it is very possible that a vein of envy struck into the hearts of the disciples of John the Baptist. And so they go running to the teacher. Things haven't changed a whole lot, have they? They go running to the teacher. Rabbi, he who is with you bound the Jordan. It's referring to Jesus. To whom you have testified. Testified as whom? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 tells us that. He's baptizing and all the people are coming to him. His ministry is on the rise. Your ministry is on the decline. In fact, we read in John chapter 2 when Jesus, uh, John the Baptist again, a second time, identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At least two of his disciples left John the Baptist and went and followed Jesus, Andrew being one and John the apostle possibly being the other one. So this sense of envy, this sense of insecurity, And I, th- I think it's pretty normal, particularly in our fallen condition. I think it's normal. Peter felt that way. He says to Jesus one time, he says, we've left everything to follow you. What about us? And Jesus assured him that he would receive his rewards in heaven. And his rewards would be abundant in heaven. But you, you have this strong emotion going on here. And, and John, John the Baptist is very, I, I, I read this, and I, I see him as being very understanding and very um, level-headed in his response. Because he tells them a person can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. We covered that at length last week. I'm not going to repeat that again this week. But he goes on to say to his disciples, You yourselves have heard my witness. You are my witnesses that I've said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. You see, they did not fully, his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, did not fully understand the plan of God. They didn't understand the plan of God. Which I have to say is probably an accurate description of the church today probably an accurate description of each and every Christian today, that we don't always fully understand the plan of God. And my goodness, if I really knew where God was taking me, if I really knew where all this was really going, I'm sure there would be somehow, in some way, and in some fashion, I would mess it up. And perhaps that's why God kind of withholds some of these things. 
It is the joy of kings to search out a matter. It is the, the, the glory of God, or the glory of kings to search out a matter. It is the glory of God to search these things, to, to, to conceal them. Because in concealing of his plan, it causes us to search after him. You will find me, Jeremiah says, when you search for me, how? In what way? With your whole heart. So the things that God conceals is really considered an invitation for us to seek after the things of God. And we seek God, and when we seek him, he reveals some of these things. Some of them, not all. Well, at least for me, not all. But he reveals these things to us as we come closer to him. I think it's when we, become, when we come closer to him that we are at a place where he can entrust his plans to us. Not that we are horrible or sinful or unspiritual or whatever the case may be, but we are in a process of being sanctified, being conformed, Philippians chapter 1, being conformed into the image of Christ. And it doesn't happen overnight. And it takes a lifetime. The problem is at times that I've found with um, people who have been a Christian for a while is that they plateau. They level off. I'm here. I know it. I know it better than you. I knew it better than you knew it yesterday. And tomorrow I'll even know it even better than you. They level off. They, they lose the wonder. They lose the awe. They lose the fascination because they have not seen the glory of God in a long time. I, I, I had a friend of mine. I love this guy. I really did. But all he ever wanted to do was talk about the Jesus movement. It bored me. I was there then, okay? I was there then. But all he wanted to do was talk about what God did then. So what? What is God doing today? Never talked about what God was doing today. It made me wonder if God was doing anything in his life today. So John has to deal with these strong emotions. What I find fascinating about this, no doubt the rumor mill, the rumor mill, right? Remember the rumor mill? Some of you guys, a lot of you guys were in the military. The rumor mill. All these rumors about what the commander was going to make us do or whatever the case may be. And, 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 you know, I think some guys or women start, well, probably guys. Anyway, they started these things just to see what kind of response they would get. Well, there's a word for that. It's called lying. But anyway, um, the rumor mill was probably running really high. And, and all the speculation. Now, I, we're wired this way. We, 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 as far as trying to figure out what's going on and what will happen next, we are wired this way. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I think we can get to the point where, where, we, where we are so consumed about what's going to happen next that we forget about the life that we are currently living. And we're worried about a tomorrow that never comes. 
In other words, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking John's disciples were an emotional mess. And John, like a good teacher, just simply, simply tells them that a person can receive not even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You've heard my story. You've heard my testimony. You are my witnesses. I am not the Christ. And then he gives this illustration. Verse 29 is kind of interesting. Because it says, he who has the bride is the groom. Excuse me, he who has the bride is the groom. But the friend of the groom who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. Now, there are so many different interpretations on that particular uh, explanation that John gives. Obviously, the groom is whom? It's Jesus. The bride is whom? The church? You could say the church. I would say, yes, the bride is the church, but technically I believe the, bri- the bride is the people of God. Both testaments. There is one tree according to the book of Romans, not two. So it's the complete people of God. That's my opinion. Um, And the bridegroom then would be whom? John the Baptist. He's giving an illustration based on a Jewish wedding ceremony. Now, there's there's a lot of stories out there about what consisted in a Jewish wedding ceremony. And, And most of the ones that really go into a lot of detail, quite frankly, when I did some serious digging uh, this past week in Messianic Jewish sources, they weren't there. All right, so I'm not going to go to probably some of the things that you've heard about this before because I'm not sure that they're true or not. I do know that as I see the bride as the completed people of God, we see that in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 10. We see that again in Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. We won't take the time to turn there this morning. But Isaiah 54, 5, I'll just, I have it in front of me, so I'll read it to you. It says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Okay, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Who is the Lord of hosts? Who's the Lord of hosts? Jesus. It's a reference to Jesus. Your maker, the name of your maker, we call him, at least Isaiah called him, among other things, the Lord of hosts. By the way, that's Yahweh of hosts. He's using the proper name of God. Yahweh of the armies. It goes all the way back to the book of Joshua, where the Lord of hosts led the armies of Israel to conquer Jericho. And Joshua, who was the leader of Israel, had this appearance of the army of the captain of the Lord, which I believe was none other than Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearing. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. By the way, the Redeemer is also a name for the Messiah, referring to Jesus. He is called the God of the whole earth. Now, there's another verse, another verse tucked in there in the Old Testament that, that, proclaims the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
proclaiming that Jesus is God. Now, the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. I'm not planning on going into a teaching on the Trinity this morning, but just, uh, just to let you know where I'm at. I'm, I'm hardcore Trinitarian. You guys know this. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom or the groom. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, you have this new Jerusalem. If you've read the description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, it is it's a picture of the bride descending. And on the gates of the city, the new Jerusalem are the names of whom? The 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes. And on the foundations of the city are the names of whom? The 12 apostles. Now, is it going to, is Paul's name going to be there or Matthias? Never mind. Okay, I had to go there. Sorry, I'm not going to answer the question. Um, what does that tell, this is symbolism, okay? What is that telling us? That the bride is the complete people of God the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. It's just this incredible picture that we're given in the book of Revelation chapter 21. And so, in a Jewish wedding, now as I think about some women and their wedding ceremonies, none here that I know, of course, but in the Jewish wedding ceremony, it, it was the best man, essentially, of the groom who planned the entire wedding. Which, yeah. Now, now, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going there. Think about your husband's best man, ladies. Would you have wanted him to have planned your entire wedding? Well, there you have it. And everybody said, amen. But all well, the ladies said, amen. Okay, thanks. Uh, but that's how it was done then. And they would, the groom, the, the best man and, and the wedding party would come and they would get the groom. And they would bring him into the wedding feast. And, and um, there, there, there's a couple of different ideas about this, but one, I will just share one with you. Because of what Laban did to Jacob. You guys remember what Laban did to Jacob? Jacob wanted to marry whom? Rachel. And so he marries her and he wakes up the next morning, which I find this strange, but anyway, never mind. Uh, he wakes up the next morning and who is he laying in bed with? The older sister. So there's a Jewish custom where the, you would put the bride, unlike the Western idea where the bride is in seclusion and is hidden before the wedding ceremony, so you don't want the groom to see the bride, you would bring the groom and the bride into the same room. They would, alone be, they would be alone together, and then the groom would know that he wasn't getting stuck with Leah, that he actually had his Rachel. Does that make sense? Anyway, that was the idea behind that. And so the voice of the bridegroom would say, everything's good. Everything's great. This is, this is the woman who I'm going to marry. This happened right before the wedding ceremony, apparently. 
different ideas, and some of these might even be urban legends, but I'm going to just throw this out to you and let you think about that for, for what it says. But the thing is, John is saying that he stands and listens for the groom and rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. Do you realize there's an incredible spiritual application to what John just said there? Do you hear the voice of Jesus? And when you do, what is your response? What is your response? Do you look forward to hearing his voice? I'm not necessarily talking audibly. If, if, if you're wondering, okay, I haven't, I think I'm still in one piece. It's, it was an interesting morning this morning, wasn't it, Larry? But anyway, but I, I think I'm still in one piece. We had, we had fun, actually, this morning. Actually, we always do, one way, shape, or form. Or at least one of us has fun, right? Anyway, um, what do you do when you hear his voice? Do you seek it? Are you listening for it? I love that story. And again, the still small voice. And I, I, I go to it probably more often than you guys probably even want to hear it. But Elijah at Mount Horeb running from uh, Jezebel. And the earthquakes and the fire and the thunders and, and, and all of the, the shaking of, of the earth and the moving of the rocks. And, and God was not in any of those. I find that fascinating because obviously God caused those manifestations, did he not? But you know what I get out of that? Think about this. It's, it's almost God said, don't listen to the manifestations. But slow down, quiet down, and listen to the voice of the Spirit speak to your heart. Be still and know that I am God. And, and that, just, that just fascinates me. Because we like the excitement, we like the bigness, we like the noise, we like all the, you know, the, all the... The incredible stuff that goes on in a, in a, particularly in a large gathering. But the thing is, the real place where that rubber meets the road for you and for I spiritually, I believe, is the still small voice where God is desiring to speak into your heart in such a personal and a unique way. John heard that voice, and when he heard that voice, he rejoiced. He was glad. And so he says, so this joy of mine has been made full. He had fulfilled, essentially, his ministry. Now think about that. That word fulfilled, it means to have been completed in the, in the Greek. It, it really is the word pleru. It really is a word that's used... I've, I've explained this to you before. You know in a sailboat where you have, you know what a spinnaker is? That's the sail up front that when you have a tailwind that you put up this huge sail at the very front of the ship and it pushes the ship. 
with, with the front sail is known as a spinnaker. And when, when you put up the spinnaker, because you have a tailwind, that sail gets completely filled up with air and it, gets, it pushes that boat. Fascinates me that, that, that the, the Greek word is, is using that illustration because it talks about the wind, the wind, the spirit, the pneuma, completely filling the sail and completing that which the sail was designed to do. That's what this word is talking about when he says that that um, that my joy has been made full. My joy has been made complete, filled to the fullness. And really, there, there, to me, there is nothing better in life than knowing that you are doing that which God has created you to do. Now, I hope that stirs some of you. Because what has God created you to do? I'll leave it with you. Because he has created each and every one of you to do something for the kingdom of God. And you and you alone can fulfill that calling. I can't. I, I love being a pastor and I hate being a pastor. Seriously. Because when people find out I'm a pastor, they either want to tell me any, everything or they don't want to tell me a thing, right? And I, I, don't want to, I want to avoid that guy like the plague, right? It's like, again, going back to the military illustration when the chaplain showed up, right? Some of those, never mind, I show, I'm not, okay, I, I see some of the looks on some of your faces. I'm not going to embellish. The thing is, is that God desires that our joy would be full. And the problem with calling, the problem with calling is, is that we see it as some, I think sometimes we see it as some grandiose idea. You know, and, and, and particularly different groups, they have different emphasis. Different denominations have different emphasis. And, and, you know, and we constantly feel if we're just knocking it out of the park for Jesus, we're not doing anything at all. And that isn't true. What is your calling in Sisters, Oregon in 2023? That's the question. Or wherever you live. What is your calling in your vocation in 2023? What is your calling in your neighborhood? 2023. Again, we always want to think of these things as grandiose and big and, 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 and see, because we've been ripped off, we actually allow ourselves to be ripped off by a modernistic idea that thinks that everything has to be bigger, better, best, just like the Sears catalog. John's on the decline. He's losing people. But he hears the voice of Jesus, therefore his joy is complete. Because he understands kingdom values. He understands what's important in the kingdom. That is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Or to use Augustine's term for it, he understands the principles of the city of God, not the city of man.
So he says, I must, excuse me, he must increase. And I must decrease. So I think about this, and I think, how has that played out in our lives? Particularly, he must increase. How has that played out in our life? What does it mean that, that, that Jesus must increase in my life? You see, thinking about it is one thing. Actually walking into it, actually living into it is another thing altogether. And I think there, there are times that, that, that we can... Um, we can think about something so much that we actually talk ourselves into believing that we're actually doing it. And the reality is we're really not doing anything other than thinking about it. But how, how must he increase? How does that play out in your life? I'm not going to answer it. I want you to answer that. I want you to take that before the Lord and, and let him answer that. Because we read in verse 31, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from above, he's referring to Jesus, is above all. But how often do we truly live that way? That old, late 60s, it's my life and I'll do what I want. Right? I can't remember. Yeah, someone don't. Don't look it up. Anyway, it's my life and I'll do what I want. It's my life and I'll think what I want, right? Um, How antithetical that is to this understanding that John the Baptist had where Jesus must increase, but we must decrease. We must decrease in comparison to who? What does it mean to decrease? How do we decrease? What's interesting about that is the one who is increasing in the story. Who is Jesus? His ministry is on the rise. John the Baptist's ministry is on the decline. The one who is increasing in this particular passage is the one who is the servant of all. And will, a few years later, at the last Passover meal, take off his outer garments, put on a towel, dressing like a slave, and he'll wash the feet of all of his apostles. What does it mean for us to decrease? And decrease in compared to whom? Well, obviously in compared to Jesus, who is the servant of all. The thing is about this particular passage, this particular saying in, 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 uh, in verse 30, it obviously had a specific application for John the Baptist, didn't it? Because he knew that he was at the getting to the end of his ministry, that his ministry had been completed. He knew that. He understood that. So it was a specific application to John. But for most of us, we read it as a general application. Kind of this overarching idea. Those ideas that we say govern our lives, generally. 
But the thing is, even though there is a general application here for you and I, that application is manifested in very specific ways. Follow what I'm saying here? In other words, you have to personalize this. Because if you don't personalize it, it just becomes this abstract idea. And then you become nothing more than someone who is like the philosophers on Mars Hill that likes to talk theory but never put anything into practice. Yes, it's a general application, but it, it is manifested specifically in our lives. Specific ways to each of us. Because if we continue to think about this in a very general context, we won't apply it personally. We won't. We talk about the stuff that we know rather than the things that we live. That's a huge difference. And, and, and when we get into that rut, as I believe the Pharisees, who were incredibly religious, who knew the Old Testament, what did Jesus say about them? You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And we can run into that same danger. Because the reality is, as long as the boat is stable, we like things exactly the way they are. Don't we? We really do. I do. It's like, don't rock the boat, Jesus. Things are smooth. And of course... That's why I love this. I love all the stories in the Gospels. But I mean, and to think about that, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is in the back of the boat. What's he doing? He's sleeping. And the disciples are scared to death because they think the boat. Now, these are seasoned fishermen. These aren't weekend warriors. These are, they're on their home waters. They understand the water. And they're afraid that they're going to capsize and sink. They're out in the Sea of Galilee. You know the story. It's in Mark 4, I believe. Jesus, uh, Jesus is sleeping through it. The boat's not stable. The boat's rocking. And then we cry out to him. And he calmed the storm, of course. The problem is, when the storm is calmed, we, 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 tend, to, we tend to let the shifts, uh, the gears shift into neutral. And we coast. So what does it mean for him to increase? Psalm 72, verse 17, I'll read it to you. I, I grabbed a hold of this last night. I was reading this last night. And it was, you know how every once in a while you just turn to a verse? You open your Bible. You're going somewhere else, all right? I got to Psalm 72 last night. and I'm like, oh, this is really good stuff. And it says, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. 
all the nations shall call him blessed. See, it's the prophetic utterance of that, that, that time yet to come. We refer to it as the millennium, and I think even beyond that. But if he must increase, and we must decrease, what is John the Baptist really talking about? He's talking about what it means to follow Jesus. He's talking about discipleship. He's talking about what it means to be one who is a learner of the things of God. And so it struck me, and, and there was a, a guy who wrote a book called Cost of Discipleship. His name is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany. And he was a part of the plot to assassinate Hitler. Which I've had several debates about with people. But anyway, I'm not going there this morning. It was within a few days of the Allied troops taking over Berlin that they executed him. So he died for his faith. But he wrote a lot of letters from prison. One of the books he wrote, again, was this idea of the cost of discipleship. And what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Because I think about John. You know, and, you know John had the same problem that Jesus will later have. He, ha- he had these whiny disciples. All right, they're, 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 they're complaining, they're, they're, they're upset, they, they don't understand what's really going on, they don't have the plan of God in, in, in their understanding whatsoever. They, 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 they saw John the Baptist's ministry as something that would continue and continue and grow and become bigger and larger, and they were going to be a part of it. The rumors start going back and forth, the sense of uncertainty And quite possibly, Matthew 11, I think it's Luke 7 or Luke 9, just off the top of my head, when John the Baptist is later thrown in prison, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and he says, are you the one, are you the one or should we seek another? And there's a lot of different interpretations on what was going on there with John the Baptist, and, and they're all speculative. Was he just actually trying to prompt Jesus forward? Was he actually having doubts? I mean, he had sat in a horrible prison condition. We're not real sure. See, Jesus says in Luke, blessed are those who are not offended by me. But he also goes on to say that there is none born of woman greater than John the Baptist, who is sitting in prison and sending his disciples to say, what's going on, Jesus? So it's a gentle rebuke, but there's this incredible affirmation as well. Which I, I, I love that about the Lord. This incredible affirmation. And it could have been that those seeds of envy that his disciples had, those seeds of uncertainty that his disciples had, I'm speculating here, guys, so just take it or leave it. But anyway... They could have been began to work their way into the heart of John. 
and we see it manifest eventually. He has his disciples to go and ask Jesus, what's happening? What's going on? Why haven't you kicked out the Romans yet? Why am I still in prison? Those are actually all legitimate questions that we ask time and time again in different forms. But he had heard the voice of the groom. Therefore, his joy was full. And because of that, he, I believe, learned the cost of discipleship for him about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. What's the cost of discipleship for each of you?